So three things are immediately apparent when you're driving into Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, number one, uh, Elvis Presley once lived here. Uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, Elvis street signs, a lot of billboards, a lot of things pointing you to Graceland. Uh, the other thing is that uh, Danny Thomas, I think, once lived here also. I don't know. Maybe his, <laughs> Maybe his daughter Marlo Thomas. Uh, but there's a St. Jude's here, which I know Danny Thomas is like the patron saint of. So you see a lot of Danny Thomas things. And the other thing is this like big, ugly pyramid that I'm walking into right now. This big, ugly pyramid that's <laughs> sitting here on the Mississippi River. Right before the bridge that you take to get into Arkansas. And uh, there's an elevator that goes all the way up to the top. And uh, I don't know if you have to pay to ride it, but I know the carnies refer to those things as like um, chump hoisters, you know. If you have to pay for it, <laughs> to ride an elevator that goes nowhere, then it's a chump hoister. But if you can just ride it, it's, it's not. So I'm gonna find out if it's a chump hoister or not. Had to go through a turnstile. I'm in the world's biggest Bass Pro Shop. Look at this place. <laughs> oh my God. It's like the, uh, so I'm in, I'm in, I'm in a hollowed out pyramid right now. Wow. And yeah, indeed, there's an elevator in the middle of it. It goes all the way up to the top of the pyramid. Oh my God. Yeah, I had no idea what this pyramid was. It's just so weird. You don't see a lot of pyramids in America. Uh, there's one I know in Las Vegas. It's like the Luxor casino right that pyramid that has that gigantic beam of light um, that shoots out of the top of it and uh, then you have one here in memphis tennessee I'm, I'm not aware of others other pyramids in america um, yeah. and you just you don't know what it is it's just such an anomaly on the landscape crossing the Mississippi River next to a pyramid and uh, but then it's pretty aware to you you're made aware of it um, what it is it, there's a gigantic Bass Pro Shops insignia like logo on the side of it along with the gigantic Ducks Unlimited Heritage Center sign so that's that's what it's all here for <laughs> it's just a big mall But yeah, initially when you see it, you just have no idea. And you, you, it's one of those things, like, I guess that every, like, American city has, or any any city that's trying to, like, attract tourists, you know? It's, like, one of those things that's, I don't know, you don't know what it is, but you're going to take your picture with it anyway. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, 
Yeah, um, this is uh, Mike Booty, your Midnight Citizen, <laughs> here for another podcast. And uh, I'm here in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, just walking around. Uh, I just got finished at this uh, conference. I haven't been to a work conference in quite a while. So uh, I went to one um, just now, actually, at Graceland. It wasn't in, in actual Graceland. I was sorry to see. When I, when I saw the uh, email inviting me to the conference, it said the guest house at Graceland. I thought I was going to stay in, like, Elvis Presley's guest house or something like that. But it's not. It's a hotel. <laughs> and they call it the guest house because it's right across the street from... Uh, from Graceland and uh, me and a bunch of other people uh, from the university who are here attending the conference um, we we were going to go to Graceland because like what else are you going to do here in Memphis other than just come and stand in the middle of this gigantic ass pyramid (laughs) and uh yeah, we were going to go to Graceland, and, uh, you know, we were getting uh, a 10% off discount because we were part of the conference. And uh, when we found out how much it was, it was like $80 for the full tour, you know, of the mansion, of the plane that Elvis traveled on, of the toilet that he died on. Um, yeah, $80. Um, including the 10% discount. And I think I realized in, in that moment when I found out how much it was to tour Graceland uh, how little I cared about Elvis Presley. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I just, it's uh, its not what, like, like he's before my time. I think like in America you just grow up with Elvis Presley kind of knowing who he is, although obviously the further through time we get away from him, you know, the longer... Uh, the further we get away from his death in summer of 1977, um, uh, probably the less people know about him. Uh, but I was very aware of him growing up. As a matter of fact, when I uh, inherited my grandfather's uh, Chevy Impala after he died, I got in there and uh, found this uh, huge collection of uh Elvis Presley tapes and CDs. And so that was kind of my Elvis education was just listening to all those. There's also a bunch of Ray Stevens uh, uh, tapes and CDs, which I, uh, I did not listen to. If you uh, know Ray Stevens, he's the uh, you know, country music, Weird Al Yankovic, kind of like this wacky guy who sings songs like The Streak. And are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Right? <laughs> are you naked? Anyway. Uh, but yeah, El- Elvis, uh, though, I-, I just never really, I mean, got on board with. I, I don't know. It just uh, wasn't something that, uh, it's not like, you know, the Beatles or like the Rolling Stones, just music that is multi-generational uh, that's timeless. I think like um, I don't think I've ever met anybody who's really into Elvis who is my age. 
um, everybody knows their music, but I mean, there's not like a cult of personality around him, you know, like a, you don't see like little kids walking around wearing like Elvis shirts the way they do like Nirvana t-shirts, you know, or Led Zeppelin. You know, it just doesn't happen. So, so yeah, I have a very passing interest in Elvis. Nothing worth paying 80 bucks to see, you know, the toilet where he died. Yes, he did die on the toilet. Very famous death. Very sad death. Yeah, man, he was uh, pretty young. But, yeah, that was uh, summer of 1977. I know that because I always remember my, uh, my friend Dave once asked me a very interesting question, very provocative question about Elvis. You know, he said, do you think Elvis ever saw Star Wars? And I was thinking about that because, yeah, like Star Wars came out in May of 1977. Uh, Elvis died in, I think, like, what, July or August. Did he ever see Star Wars? I mean, that's one of those things where... Uh, you sort of have like um, two completely different eras of uh, history uh, crossing each other at the same time. You know, Elvis, who you really do associate with like 50s and 60s. And then, of course, uh, <laughs> you know, his bloated days in Las Vegas. Uh, it's kind of a wash-up, but at the same time, uh, creating, like, this template for, you know, the musical acts that followed in Las Vegas. You know, like, as a, uh, as a performer whose, like, best days are behind you, Las Vegas is kind of a, uh, a refuge where you can go and maybe they'll, like, build you a showroom and name it after you and give you, like, a Cadillac and... And you're just like a resident performer there. You know, you just live there and you do like three shows a night or something like that. And I think Elvis Presley was kind of the template for that. So look at this. It's like a gigantic freshwater pool that you can look in, an educational aquarium. So you can come and see all the fish swim around that you're being encouraged to kill with all of the uh, fishing equipment around you. So... Yeah, if you've never been into a Bass Pro Shop, all of them are pretty much like this, uh, except on a much smaller scale. This is a uh, definitely a flagship store here. It's just full of hunting equipment, camouflage. Um, there's like a Wahlburgers. And the whole thing, you know, has like this, uh, you know, facade that's uh, designed to make you feel like you're walking through like a swamp in the American South. There's like Spanish moss uh, hanging off a bunch of uh, artificial trees. And, uh, yeah. I really, I mean, this is like what the inside of Space Mountain looks like, only it's much, much bigger. It's so bizarre walking inside this hollowed out building. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and see if I can get on this elevator and go up to the top of this thing. <laughs> And again, remember, you know, if it's if you don't have to pay for it, it's not a chump hoister. You're not you're not a chump. You're just somebody taking an elevator. But but if you pay for it, then you're a chump. Because <laughs> you're taking an elevator that goes nowhere, not even to a bathroom. Okay. Observation deck in the lookout restaurant. Oh, there's a there's a restaurant up there. 
Wait a second. Guests with reservations at the Lookout restaurant and hotel guests. There's a hotel here, too. Oh, my God. Yeah, look at this. $8. All right. It's a chump oyster. $8. God damn it. All right. I'm a chump. I'm going to go. Hello everybody, I'm Bill Vance. Did you know that you're taking a ride of the nation's tallest freestanding elevator? You're flying over 300 feet in the air. Now that's taller than the Statue of Liberty. Here's another fun fact for you. This elevator and everything you see when you look down would never have happened had it not been for one big old Mississippi River blue cat. One day, my dear friends and fishing buddies, Johnny Mars, the founder of this place, Jack Emmett and I, were not very far from this building on the Mississippi River fishing. Johnny was trying to make a major decision if he should put a Bass Pro Shop in the pyramid and kept asking, should we do it? Not knowing how to answer, he finally said, I'll make it easy. If we catch a catfish over 30 pounds, we'll put a Bass Pro inside. Well, guess what? There we were when Jack set the hook and reeled in a fish that removed all the pressure. A beautiful catfish, a little over 30 pounds. Johnny screamed out, it's a deal, we're gonna do it. We all kissed the fish and released it. Before the fish even got back to the bottom, Johnny started making plans on turning this place into an outdoorsman playground. A good fish story, huh? Well, you're just about to the top, and I want you to go and have a big time at the lookout. Don't forget to step out on those glass overlooks and take a look at the most amazing view of Memphis. Have a good time, folks. Yo, bro, get up, I'm at the lookout gun. Bad pro. I'm finna walk down with the bad pro gun. Throw down on me. Alright, so we're at the top of the pyramid, and uh, yeah, there's a glass bottom floor. So you can, like, look down and imagine what it would be like to fall to your death. So, I mean, let's face it, that's the reason they put these things here, right? <laughs> imagine our own mortality. So I'm looking at the Mississippi River now. Look at this. Let's take the pictures. You ever mean to like uh, take a picture with your phone and you hit video by accident? And you just have to make that decision in like a split moment. Like, do I want to keep filming? I just want to take a photo. I'm taking a video right now. So. Memphis. I've like uh, driven through here a couple of times. Uh, I was actually just driving uh, through Memphis this past summer uh, with my wife. We went to Hot Springs, Arkansas, but we didn't. And that's what the first time I ever saw this pyramid. And I was honestly like, what the hell is that? <laughs> I had no idea what it was, but I took a picture with it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, you know, Tennessee is kind of like people say it's three states in one. You know, it's uh, east, middle, and then west. I'm in west 
uh, Tennessee right now. It's so strange because it, it only took me uh, like four hours to get up here. But I drove across four states in that time. So it was like Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, and then I went over the river to Arkansas where my campground is, where I'm heading back to right now in just a few minutes. So. Yeah, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know why I've never uh, really been too too keen on visiting Memphis. Uh, I guess like when I was a kid, there was kind of this uh, lore around Memphis that I was very aware of. Um, because like you know, in the '90s, uh, some of the like biggest films that I was interested in were like <laughs> those John Grisham. Legal thrillers, you know, like The Client or uh, The Firm with Tom Cruise, The Pelican Brief. Um, like all those movies took place in Memphis. Um, and uh, I don't know, like being from the South myself, I, I was kind of like, wow, those movies, they take place like a few hours from where I live. Like I, you know. And so I was kind of thinking about that as like just somebody who never really traveled that much when I was a child, thinking that like um, these are really big movies and, and every, a lot of people are watching them and paying attention to the place where I live, you know, the South. And of course, you know, the South is very, very, you know, a lot of different things. Um, I don't know necessarily if Memphis, Tennessee counts as the deep south anymore. Like, I live in Birmingham, Alabama. I live in the deep south. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But uh, Memphis, I guess, is like almost, it's kind of almost close to the west, um, I suppose. I mean, it's not the west. I know that. But I guess the Midwest. I don't know. Like, Mark Twain wrote a lot about the Mississippi River. He was from, like, Hannibal, Missouri. So, <laughs> I was wondering if I should uh, go around and uh, see if I can find some filming locations for some famous uh, John Grisham movies. I don't know. There's a bridge here somewhere, I thought, that actually has like a, one of those sky trams that goes under it. Like, that was in that movie, The Firm, right? Yeah. Um, oh, look at that. There's a billboard, yes, for Alexander Shannara. That guy's got billboards all over the South. He's a lawyer. His, uh, his son used to intern at the place where I worked. <laughs> but yeah, that guy is like the, 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 the billboard king of the South. You know, yeah. I don't know. I've kind of done enough sightseeing for today. I sort of like. I, it's kind of been a long day. I've been at like uh, that conference across the street from Elvis's house all day long. I kind of want to go back to the uh, cabin. I need to check on the dogs too. I had to bring my dogs up here because uh, my wife Jessica's out of town. And uh, we couldn't get a dog sitter, so I had to. Br I just had to bring the dogs. So I got to go check on them. They've been in the cabin 
for a few hours now, so. I mean, I did some sightseeing. I don't know. I, you know, I thought going by Graceland, I, th I thought I could just see Elvis's house. That's kind of all I wanted to do is just maybe I could see it for free or something like that. I don't know what I was thinking. You can't see Elvis's house for free. They've put like a giant wall around it like it's Mecca or something like that. And I mean, in a lot of ways, it is Mecca, you know, for Elvis Presley fans, I guess. It's a very popular place, uh, that Graceland. Yeah, I, I drove by it, and there's like a gigantic, uh, you know, visitor center, a museum and all that. I don't know where the actual house is. It must be buried in there somewhere. I don't know. Maybe it's like walled up inside of a giant, you know, the giant museum or whatever, kind of like this uh, Bass Pro Shop, you know, pyramid or whatever. But, yeah, it's like uh, I always used to think that like Six Flags was uh, Disneyland for rednecks. I don't think it is. I think it's Graceland, you know, it's like driving uh, through the parking lot today and just you know there were uh, license plates from uh, Alabama you know Mississippi Missouri Texas Louisiana uh, you know. <laughs> yeah that's a uh, that's a pretty good representation of southerners right there I tell you you know yeah and, uh, yeah, I did some sightseeing. I also drove by a Chuck Hutton Toyota, this t a Toyota dealership that was uh, featured in one of my favorite documentaries of all time, uh, this movie called Slasher, uh, directed by John Landis, which is about this uh, uh, freelance, like, uh, gun-for-hire car salesman you know, like if if you're if you run a dealership and you're uh, and it's in trouble and uh you know it needs to have like a a really productive weekend of moving cars around you call in this guy the slasher you know he uh, lives in southern california and he's an alcoholic and he smokes like two packs of cigarettes a day and he's just uh got amped up on energy and uh you fly him and his dj out to your <laughs> toyota dealership and yeah, that movie Slasher, it came out like in 2002 or something, and like nobody knows about this movie. Um, it was like a, I think it premiered on either like the Sundance channel or the IFC channel. But yeah, it was directed by John Landis, you know, who did like Animal House and the Blues Brothers. I think it was the only documentary he ever made, but man, it's, it's just one of the, like the best, <laughs> best movies ever just to like watch this guy just, uh, who's just all this pent-up energy and you just like unleash him for the weekend and just like uh, go and sell cars to people and there's like this lottery they do where you can come in and like uh somewhere on the lot is like this 88 dollar car you know it's like a car that they're going to sell you for 88 dollars so the uh you know if you can uh if you can go there and find the 88 dollar car you know, you can you can buy it and drive it off the lot. Well, it's pretty easy to find which one the eighty-eight dollar car is. You know, it's like this piece of shit beater. Um, person in the movie who wins it, they drive it off the lot. I don't I don't want to tell you what happens to it, but it's, the film crew drives it follows her home after she buys the car for eighty-eight dollars, and it does uh, not go well. So, anyway, 
But yeah, I went by that dealership today, the Chuck Hutton Toyota dealership. That was my uh, that was my tourism today. You know, I, I think like, yeah, if you can't go to Graceland, you can't afford Graceland, you know, drive by the Toyota dealership. Actually, if you walk in, it may end up costing you a lot more, but I don't know what I'm talking about. I am sightseeing right now. I'm seeing all of Memphis. It's beautiful. It really is. Like the sun's kind of hanging low. Should be setting in like about 30 minutes or so, I guess. Sun's setting over the Mississippi. I need to take another picture. I wonder if anybody's ever fallen from here. I don't know. Like, really, I mean, isn't that what you think about when you come to places like this, where the whole idea is just to, like, be in a high place and just look down? I mean, like, yeah, the sights are beautiful and everything, but, I mean, let's face it, you know. It's like when I went to Niagara Falls. I mean, everybody, I think, goes to Niagara Falls, and the first thought that they have before they admire the view is, like, I wonder what would happen if I just flung myself in there. So... <laughs> get out of here and go eat something. Mr. Information, get me Memphis, Tennessee. Okay, it's a little later now. The sun has gone down and I'm in Arkansas across the river. And uh, it's a cold night. <laughs> here it's, uh, the weather has just been so funky. I know that's a boring topic, but it really has. Um, when I left for this little trip yesterday, I didn't even think about um, packing anything really warm. I brought a sweater, but uh, not because, uh, not, not to keep warm, but just to uh, kind of look nice at the conference today for giving a, <laughs> I had to give a presentation. So, so yeah, I'm wearing that sweater right now along with a, uh, my rain jacket. <laughs> That's all I've got right now. And I'm uh, sitting out on the porch. And uh, fortunately, there's a little space heater in the cabin that they give you, that they supply you with. So I plugged that thing in and uh, brought it out here with me. I'm not really getting much, though. Yeah, it's a space heater. It's not... not, not it's designed for indoor use. Um, so, of course, coming coming to the KOA. So that's where I'm staying right now. The KOA, the Campground of America. Um, and uh, I have quite a history with the Campgrounds of America on on my podcast. Uh, here, I, I first uh, stayed at a KOA and recorded at one. Uh, back in April of, or Mar was it March of 2015? Yeah, March of 2015, when I went to Chattanooga, Tennessee, which was the which was uh, the KOA that I always stayed in as a kid with my parents, and I traveled up there just to um, just just to see if it was still there. I didn't know if it was even still there. It just seemed like kind of this fleeting memory I had from my childhood and, and lo and behold it was still there and I stayed there for the night um, I went into Chattanooga to see uh, Joe Bob Briggs uh, give give a talk there you know the redneck film critic of the of Grapevine Texas um, 
who very you know a couple years after after that that moment he uh started doing this you know, a show on Shudder, you know, one of these uh, streaming networks that shows uh, horror movies. He started doing his, like, old thing where he would come on and, you know, host horror movies. And, you know, back when I was seeing him, like, in, uh, in Chattanooga in 2015, and then the year before that when I went to see him at the small little film festival in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Or no, Na- Nashville, Indiana. What am I saying? Um, you know, he, he had... He had a following, but it was very, very diminutive, very small um, compared to what he now has. He's like this cult horror icon now. It, it's like when I when I went to um, see him in 2015, I got to talk with him afterwards. There was nobody that was really talking with him, and I just went up to him, and kind of the same thing happened the next year when I went up there with some friends. Uh, and then the uh, next year when he got put on Shutter. He had this line out the door to meet him. He was suddenly very famous. <laughs> he still wasn't charging for his autograph, though. You know, so that that'll be good. That's good. Uh, but yeah, yeah. One of the things I'm I'm excited about uh, this happened to just you know kind of stars aligned, I guess. Um, uh, Joe Bob is going to be doing a Valentine's Day special in about an hour or so on Shutter. He's going to show like two. Uh, valentine's day themed horror movies i don't know so like i'll watch them I, i'll probably just have them on the background well i just enjoy the cabin that's kind of the best way to enjoy joe bob so but uh yeah yeah i made it back to the cabin in arkansas and um, yeah i went to the conference today and i i had a good time but i was very nervous the whole time because i i had to leave my dogs here at the cabin and I was just, you know, they're, they're basset hounds and they, they get themselves so worked up. They have such anxiety when, uh, when I leave them. And I was nervous I was going to come back to the cabin today and it was just going to be like torn to shreds. Um, so, uh, fortunately I, I came back and they were, they were waiting there for me. They were fine. They didn't go to the bathroom in the cabin or anything like that. Um. I took a lot of preventative measures um, to make sure that would not happen. Um, and I wouldn't be charged like an extra cleaning fee or whatever. So, But they're, they're in the cabin right now sleeping because <laughs> they've had a long day. <laughs> so, uh, an interesting thing I learned today is uh, one of the first things that you see when you cross the Mississippi River um, from Tennessee into Arkansas is you pass a town called West Memphis. Um, you know, you see the Arkansas state sign and then you see the sign for West Memphis. And, uh, it's very confusing. It's called West Memphis, Arkansas. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very strange, right? It's, it's West Memphis yet it's in Arkansas. Like, I don't know why they don't just call it like East Little Rock. It's very odd. You can hear that uh, this KOA is not very secluded. There's <laughs> a highway right behind me uh, and uh, a liquor store. Looks like it's open all night. So, uh, yeah, I may go over there a little later. Um, but, yeah, I mean, West Memphis, Arkansas, that's so strange. It's like one of those things like Texarkana. Like I went there this summer. That that's the town 
part of it, there's literally a line, like a, a white line that goes right down the center of the town. Um, on one half, it's Texas, and on the other half, it's Arkansas. So, uh, yeah, it, it's kind of like that. Like, it's just one of those border towns or whatever between two states. Once out between two worlds. Magician longs to see, right? Um, Twin Peaks. So... Yeah, that'd be good, like a good trivia question for like who wants to be a millionaire or something. In what state is West Memphis? They probably say Tennessee, but eh, it's Arkansas. Of course, maybe they mess up and say Arkansas and get it right. I don't know. Um. Yeah, I was reminded uh, West Memphis um, was the town uh, where those three kids were charged with uh, the alleged uh, murder of, uh, of several young boys um, during the satanic panic of the 1980s. You know, they were charged because, like, everybody said that they were into Satan worship and these kids went missing and... Um, Everybody blamed it on these on these teenagers who wore like dark makeup and had goth symbols and all that stuff. So um, and I think I think one of them eventually got freed. I'm not sure. But uh, HBO made like a series of documentaries on them called Paradise Lost. Uh, I watched those several. I don't know, probably many years ago now. I think uh, the last one came out around 2010 or 11. And that's the last time I saw them. But I, I would highly recommend those movies they are very good. Um, and we're instrumental, I, I, I believe, in, in getting getting those people off of uh, death row. So I don't know all the details, but uh, don't take it from me. But uh, yeah, yeah, I did. I did go to a conference today, and uh, this is uh, not not my first podcast that I've done at a conference. I think everyone that I've ever gone to, and, and I've. Um, it's kind of, yeah, strange. Like when I was, uh, well, my first job out of college was working for a marketing company and, uh, we did marketing for trade shows. So we were based out of Birmingham and, uh, my job was just to, uh, drive all over the country and set up these little marketing kiosks at these, uh, trade shows. And, uh, you know, where, where the companies that were exhibiting at those shows uh, would, like, give us their literature and we, ju we would just display it on, like, a rotating kiosk at the front of the, um, yeah, at the, at the front of the uh, ex exhibition hall. So uh, I've talked about this before, you know, I just go to all these conferences all over the country. Uh, my first one was working at the Toy Fair at the Javits Convention Center in New York City in uh, February of 2007. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, I mean, it, it was so much fun. I got to, you know, just right out of college, get to travel everywhere and just go to these conferences, which are you know, basically just a chance for like people in, in whatever industry or whatever, uh, profession just to get together. And like, mostly it's just like people drinking, like, you know, they go to these breakout sessions and, and keynote speeches and, and then at night they just go out all night long and, 
go back to the conferences like hungover the next day because it's like you know they're, they're all a bunch of people who know each other you know they go to work every day and the only people that they can talk to about their jobs uh are kind of their wives or, or, or their husbands or whatever and and um now they have like three unchaperoned days in a foreign city together to just talk about people uh to talk about their jobs the people who work their same jobs so um I, I i've always kind of liked that <laughs> that idea and i really do try and seize the chance to go to a conference uh whenever possible um just because you know it's a fun atmosphere um it could be a lot of fun and you know if you're interested enough you can uh, meet a lot of people network with a lot of people who can uh you know help you in your job so but yeah I, I would do a lot of these conferences when i worked for um you know the park back in the day um i went to several as a teacher and uh now uh you know i'm a i'm a i'm a grad student but i work as a, a tutor in the university writing center where we help students with their you know with their various drafts their uh their writing and um, th this is a, a first for me, though. Uh, so I'm at the uh, I'm at I'm at the Southeastern uh, Writers Conference Association. So it's a, it's a collective of uh, writing centers at universities like all over the southeast. Um, you know, so so we were meeting with people today from like Auburn and the University of Mississippi and Ole Miss and Auburn um, or Vanderbilt. You know. And uh, yeah, they were all there. A lot of other different uh, people. There was one girl who was like at a school in Miami. She flew up here, so. And uh, yeah, this this was a, a first for me this year because this year I actually, uh, this time around I actually had to present something which, you know, these conferences, you basically spend your whole day going to breakout sessions and people present things and, and they kind of write proposals for things that they want to talk about. And um, back, back in October, I was kind of encouraged. I was talking to the writing center director about something and she like encouraged me uh, to write a proposal and about it that like this might be something that other writing center tutors might want to hear about. And so me and a couple of other people, uh, we, we wrote a proposal for a presentation and we got accepted. And I was kind of like, I was, I, I was hoping uh, almost like not to be accepted because you have to go and give like a speech and you have to be in front of people as like an, you know, expert. And uh, it was very uh, nerve wracking to me. Um, like I won't lie, but. But, but we did get accepted, so we came up here to present. We, we presented on this thing called uh, uh, non-traditional students, working with non-traditional students in the writing center. And, and that, that's, that's a term that's uh, generally described as students who are, um, you know, have taken a break uh, in their educational careers uh, between, say, high school and college, or maybe they've taken a couple years of college and they've, they've taken some time off for various uh, reasons. And... Uh, you know, so some of the students may be like multilingual, may, may come from, uh, you know, diverse backgrounds, uh, you know, socioeconomic classes and things like that. Um, 
primarily their older students. And um, I thought as myself being an older student and, um, you know, this is like my, my third time back in school. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an adjustment that you go through um, as one of these students. You know, you, you come into the college campus and uh, especially as an older student, you find out that, uh, you know, well, I mean, for instance, you know, I guess biologically, I mean, some of these students that, you know, I'm working with in the writing center could actually be my, my children, you know. <laughs> I mean, luckily I didn't get laid in high school <laughs> so, and never meet them, but uh, no, never, you know, I, you know, anyway, <laughs> they're not, um, I'm fairly sure. Um, but yeah, yeah. As you, as you as you get older, you kind of go back into the into the college environment, and um, it's not really an environment that's made for you as an older person. You know, it's very much for young people. And so, you know, you have different goals and aspirations. Like a lot of the students who enter the college environment um, right out of high school, they're they're they're. Obviously, you know, hopefully some of them want to learn something, but, you know, it's a chance to get away from the house. It's a chance to just be their own boss for a little while and uh, see what living independently is like. Um, whereas, you know, for older students, they've done all that. And uh, now they really understand the purpose of why they're going to college. You know, another thing also is that a lot of tr non-traditional students, you know, they're paying their way. So they're going to go to all their classes. They're going to do all of their assignments. And I mean, because they, they really are paying the bill. Um, you know, they're, they're eating all of the steak. It's not like you're, you're a kid whose parent, whose dad, you know, orders you a steak because you say it looks good. And then it comes to you and you eat like two things and two little slivers. And then you're like, I'm full. You know, it's like you really value how much that education you're getting cost. And, um, you know, not to say all, all young people are, are, you know, don't appreciate it, but uh, they're, they're less likely to. So, yeah, we, we uh, talked about this. So we were on a panel. So fortunately, I didn't have to present by myself. I was up there with uh, two other people. And uh, pretty much working on and on it uh, until the last minute, just in terms of what we were going to present and talk about and PowerPoint presentation and uh, just kind of working on it until like the last minute before we gave the presentation. Um, but yeah, I, I did pretty well. Like, uh, you know, I think public speaking has never been one of those things that has really bothered me. I think just because like I have been like it used to be my job. I would get up in front of people, not just as a teacher, but also like working at the park and giving tours. And, you know, I, I like public speaking, getting in front of like, you know, a hundred people at a time was kind of my job. And, uh, as long as I knew what I was talking about, I was totally fine. Once I started talking out of school and pretending that I, I was an expert, that's where I got into trouble. So, you know, I, I kind of developed this style very early on of just being in front of people and being like humble and conversational and, and just trying not to be formal and just be like approachable. Um, 
and yeah, I mean, sure enough, like it, it, it worked for me today. Um, like after the presentation, I, several people, you know, came up to me and talked to me afterwards. And, you know, I think that's how you know that you gave a pretty good presentation is that people actually want to like keep talking to you afterwards and have conversations about what you were talking about. So if you run out of time and people are still talking to you, I think that's always a good thing. And that's what happened today. So I was very happy with how it went. Yeah, I was, I was, I mean, I won't deny it. I'm no better. I, I was a little nervous. Um, but you know, once the thing got, got going, um, it went, it went perfectly fine. Yeah. No. Yeah. Once you sit out here, it's not so bad. Step in here. Hey, girls. My dogs. It's like uh, Joe Bob's got the countdown on. I've got him turned on. Joe Bob's got the countdown on. 39 minutes to Joe Bob. <laughs> 39 minutes. Yeah, and I, uh, today after I got out of the conference, I was so relieved to just be done with uh, the presentation and just be worried about that. I know, I know, it's okay. That, uh, the first thing I got on was I did not Google how to get home back to the KOA. I Googled, where's the nearest cigar store near me? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there was a cigar shop about two miles down the road so that's where I went <laughs> and uh, yeah I got this Alec Bradley magic toast cigar very much looking forward to having that a little bit later when Joe Bob starts watching some Joe Bob with a cigar at the cabin I know Izzy it does sound nice doesn't it right yeah I know <laughs> oh man yeah. Oh, do I want to talk about this? I don't know. There, there's a, a topic I do want to talk about, and uh, I don't know. You know, you, you know, my my podcast has never been. A political soapbox. I, I think that's boring. It's not the kind of like vibe that I want to build here and that I want to let out and just put out. Like every single time I've talked about anything political on my show, I've regretted it immediately afterwards. And I may very well regret what I'm about to say. Um, but, you know, I, I think like one of the reasons that I started doing this show many years ago is because I am a very curious person. Um, I do like to just explore things by talking. And sometimes I don't even know like my opinions. I don't know where I am on anything until I start talking about it, right? And I think one of the problems that we're having right now um, is we, we can't really even talk about things that we don't have opinions about yet. Because not having an opinion on something is like being against it. Um, 
you know, if that makes any sense, I, I think that's kind of the best way I can say it. Like I'm, you know, very much, uh, I don't know, for many years, I, I sort of, like, just kind of stayed out of politics. I was very aware of what was going on, but I was very much, you know, apolitical, more or less. Um, I kind of have this idea, right, that um, I think, like, as, as long as, um, you know, as long as people can, like, be, be kind of free to, like, live their best happiness, uh, I think, I think it, without hurting anybody else, I think that's okay, right? Um... I think the government does have a responsibility to take care of its citizens to a degree. Um, you know, I don't think that either side should tell anybody what to do, but that, that's ultimately like the biggest problem we have is that we have to like boil it down to, into black and white either side. Right. So again, like, I mean, Am I a Democrat or Republican? People have been asking me that as long as they've been asking me, are you an Auburn fan or an Alabama fan, right? And I just, like, I don't know. I mean, um, it's it's one of those things. I don't understand how, like, we can't be... We, we have to be so up in the air about gender. Um, but we have to decide about Republicans and Democrats, right? We, we have to decide, are we liberal or conservative, Right? You know, it's like, I always grew up thinking it was the other way around, right? I mean, like, you know, from as early as I can, like, you know, see, um, I, I kind of had an, I, I had an idea of like what gender I was, right? Um, but I'm still trying to figure out, am I a Republican or a Democrat? You know, it's one of those things that changes as you get older. Um, and, and it almost seems like it's flip-flopped now, right? Anyway, I, you know, okay, I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm tapping around the issue, I know. Um, yeah, yeah, today we, we had a keynote speech, um, you know, from, from a person who identified as, you know, cisgendered, and I kind of knew, you know, going into this conference today, you know, one of the things that I talked about on my podcast before I, you know, took my very long break that I'm ending right now, um, was just whether or not, you know, college is like woke, you know, W-O-K-E. Um, you know, this, this term that's been uh, started out as one thing and I think has morphed into something incredibly different than what it was originally intended to mean. Um, and my dogs are going at it there. But, um, yeah, I was, I was wondering, like, people have this idea that, you know, higher education, not only is it incredibly expensive and very prohibitive, um, and may not ultimately make that much of a difference whether or not you get a job. Um, but it's also in becoming increasingly indoctrinative. Um, like you send your kids off and, and they're going to come out, um, you know, not, not sure which gender they are or, you know, like believing in things that uh, don't, that are not, you know, at the end of the day, huge issues. And, um, it's just going to kind of distract them from like living happy, productive lives. And they're just going to get kind of bogged down in a bunch of, you know, uh, partisan issues that are just going to make them resent, uh, being alive. 
Anyway, that's what people told me before I went into, before I went back to college. And uh, no doubt I, I knew about that. And You know, my, my idea for when I quit my job last year and decided to become a, full, a full-time student again, seeking a master's degree in English literature, um, is that I would just like, you know, I'm a curious person. I'm just going to approach this experience like I've, I've approached every experience my entire life. Just go into it and just talk with everybody, you know, get everybody's point of view, just like, and, and, and never commit to anything ever, you know, just, just like do what feels right. Okay. And, uh, you know, just like the more, the more I've gone through, like, I mean, I've, I've pretty much managed to, to do that. Like the last six or seven months that I've been in school, you know, I've been studying like medieval literature and, uh, 19th century American literature. And, and for the most part, like, I mean, it's been incredibly traditional academic discussion. It's been stuff that's interested me about literature and, um, and all that, you know, and, and today I, I walk into this conference and, um, the first thing I see is a bathroom and the male and female, you know, figures on there, uh, had been blocked out by a giant sign that had been taped over it, um, saying all humans welcome, you know, and, and that, that's when I kind of, that, that was like my first experience really was seeing this, this, this wokeism, right? This, this thing that's not necessarily liberal or Democrat and it's not conservative or Republican. It's like this whole new thing, um, that, I, I think is, uh, is, is quite, a, is quite extreme in the way that it's, uh, that, that it's really using language, uh, to, um, to, to pit people who don't agree with it, um, against that movement. Um, you know, I, I looked at, there was a bench, a, a table next to it that kind of had like all these different pronoun stickers and pins, like you can pick up something and say like, I'm he, she, or I'm she, her, or I'm they, them. Um, you know, you could wear it on there. And, you know, again, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, I, I grow up and one of the few things I don't know much, but, but, but one thing that I am absolutely certain of is what gender I am. I'm like, I am, I'm he, him. I'm a male. Okay, great. We can move on. I'm heterosexual. Yes. And I guess like, I, I guess I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know, <laughs> but, but it's one of those things that like, because I had to, I, I just, I knew this so many years ago, it's not something that I've ever thought about again. And, um, now I'm, I'm in an environment where everybody just seems to not really be sure of this. And, and I, I guess what kind of scares me about this a little bit is the fact that if we can't decide on what genders we are, then how the hell are we supposed to solve any of the problems that we have in the world that are truly genuinely complex? I, and, and that, that's one of the things that I think is like, I think it, it's like we are so bogged down right now in just like complex issues that we're just withdrawing within ourselves and just questioning the very basic nature of who we as individuals are. And, um, 
And yeah, there, there was a keynote speaker today who was cisgendered and came on and, and did say some things that made me think about, think about a few things in like, in like different ways. Um, in terms of the fact that, you know, I'm cisgendered and it's taken me many, many years of uh, struggling to finally figure that out. And it's like, you know, I'm sure that whatever this person went through, they are getting to this point. They've arrived at a decision and that they that they are happy with, that they can live with. OK. And I, I you know, I think that's fantastic. That's that's great. Um, it uh, was a little bit weird, though, the presentation that they gave, um, because you know, and this, this is really my major issue with this right now is because if we are going to talk about woke as a movement, then we have to acknowledge that it is in its infancy. And I think a lot of what, what troubles me is that a lot of the people who are in that movement seem to think that it's fully formed. Um, and that everybody else who doesn't agree with them is not, um, that, that, that they are fully formed. They have not only identified their, their genders and what, and what they, what they want to be identified as, but they've also managed to determine an entire political philosophy within the span of just a few years. And, you know, it just is like this, this keynote speaker today was, uh, was discussing, um, language in the writing center, you know, like students come in and they have these papers that they, and we look at them and we, as writing tutors are supposed to, um, look at them and like, uh, correct them for grammar. Okay. Well, what is grammar? And they go into like this idea that like grammar is this white supremacist construct. <laughs> and that that's the language that she uses. And she says, or they, they say that, uh, that, that it's racist, that it's racist language. It's grammar is racist. And, and all of this stuff that like only before I I've heard on like these, um, you know, I've, I've heard like really extreme cases and things like, you know, on, on, you know, YouTube videos, people talking about, you know, uh, the, these extreme cases of people who are actually calling, um, you know, words like, however, you know, these transition words that we use from, to go from one point to another, um, racist words. Okay. So basically, basically they were saying today that like the, 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 rules that we are judging students by are racist and that 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 really bothers me because the thing about it is um yes of course language is a construct um language is something that we develop and change and it morphs over many many times that's why every year you know webster's dictionary adds new words um to to their catalog um yeah of course language is pliable of course it's malleable um, like that, like they were saying this today, like that was like some kind of a big revelation she had discovered or they had discovered 
in in their research. Um, and you know, I think anybody knows that it's malleable. Um, what I may, what I really did take issue with was that um, they were saying that when the student comes in and they write the they, they write the, the the paper like they talk. Okay, like they're not writing it in formal, like standard American English in, in a way that their white professor may be able to grade it. The, like, the, like they're talking about eventually getting to the point where we grade everybody based on their based on the grammar and the language that they've learned and gotten used to speaking as they've grown up. So essentially the whole way that we make arguments, which is to kind of standardize them so that everybody can understand, um, you know, it's, is, uh, it, you know, needs to be rethought. I, I don't know if I'm really doing the argument justice. I'm really trying to, I really am. Um, my, my major point is this, is the fact that I'm willing to hear you out, but once you start calling the practices um, that I do every single day working with students, you know, trying to work with them on, you know, taking their opinions and forming them into coherent arguments um, that anybody who has learned the English language can make sense of. When you call that racist, I have a huge problem with that. Like, I'm not racist. And I, I don't like, and, and I also don't like it when you kind of condescend to me and tell me that the practices that I've been using all these years, I've just been manipulated by, a, by an institutionalized white supremacy. Um, you know, that, that, that really bothers me. And I think that's one of the reasons why people, why, why, why we, why we have such fucked up political dis divisiveness in this country right now is that the only way we seem to know how to communicate with each other is through like really extremist language, um, that, that just, that, that polarizes and that, you know, and I think, I don't know. <laughs> um, one thing that I was noticing was really missing um, from this person's argument, from this person's keynote address today, um, was the fact that, okay, the person comes in and I ask them to write their argument in formal language. Like, I tell them, no, you need to put an ing on this and not an in to show thinking, not thinking. Okay, that's, that's totally fine for how we talk, but that's not how we want to write an argument. We want to put the whole word there. The whole word, okay, was, was you know, it needs to be, it needs to go there for a reason, right? Because ing, you know, it's a participle, but it can be used, you know, in many different ways as a subject, as a gerund, right? Um, you know, these are, these are the rules and like, you know, we're, we don't want to, if a student comes into me and like tells me, happens to tell me someday that I'm racist because I'm telling them to put an ing instead of an in, um, 
I, I just I think that's like that that's not a likely scenario, and if it is, that's kind of absurd because I'm clearly am not a racist. Um, I, I think that perhaps um, lynching somebody is racist. Um, I think that's pretty racist. I think that perhaps opening up a restaurant and telling black people they can't eat there that that's racist. Um, you know, I don't I don't think asking somebody to or encouraging them to put down the word however to show that they're transitioning between a point to a counterpoint. I don't think that's racist. And um, may, maybe theoretically it is. I think theoretically we can make anything racist. Okay. Just like we, we, we can connect any actor who's been in any movie ever to Kevin Bacon. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't make us racist. And at the end of the day, you know, like intent is totally different. Um, than, than perception. Okay. So I'm sorry that you perceive me to be one way. I did not intend to be that way. Okay. Oh man. So this is why I didn't want to get into this because I'm just like, I'm totally just not sure where I am in this argument right now. And, and again, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm just trying to figure it out. But, but I sat there today at that keynote speech, just listening to this person talk and really trying so desperately hard to make sense of their argument. But, but what, but what it really boiled down to was them saying that, um, language always changes and we should accept that it changes. And, and, and I'm like, of course, nobody's saying that language doesn't change. It, it, it evolves over time. Everybody knows that. And this isn't some big discovery. But at the end of the day, there is still something called a professional world out there. And a professional world expects you to use certain language to express your opinions and ideas. And if you ever want to get anything done, you're going to have to learn to write that way. If you want to call it racist, then you can call it racist. But it's also, eh, I mean, you know, maybe someday, you know, the language will change to where, like, the, the proper spelling for, you know, thinking is thinking. Okay? Maybe that'll happen one day. And I'm not saying I necessarily don't want to live in that world. I mean, you know, that's what people agree to. That's what people agree to. Um, I'm getting used to the point right now that like most people say LOL instead of laughing out loud instead of actually doing it. Um, you know, I'm still one of those people that when they text at the moment, I actually say at the moment, I don't, I don't say ATM. Um, just because like an extra 15 seconds spent composing a text is not going to kill me. If I, if I have the time to say at the moment, I'm going to put it out there because a lot of my friends who I communicate through text messaging have said that they don't really understand my tone in text messages. So I try to be as clear as I possibly can. Maybe I should start saying ATM. I don't know. But that, that was her big closing moment today is that she showed us all a picture. 
um, of a sign that she saw in the library at the school where she teaches um, that said, room is closed, ATM. And she asked everybody to put up their hands if they knew what that meant. And it kind of took me a moment because it was out of context. And I was like, ATM, you mean like automatic teller machine? And then I was like, oh, ATM, that must mean at the moment. And everybody raised their hands. And the keynote speaker said, exactly, that's my point. Language is always changing. 15 years ago, we wouldn't have said ATM, but now we say it and everybody knows what it means. Thank you very much. And that was the end of the speech. And it, it was, again, one of those things where it's like, um, yeah, <laughs> language changes. And language, the grammar that we have today is, is not, was not constructed by a bunch of white supremacists. It was constructed by everybody in society working together over many different years to obtain meaning, okay? Like the name itself, woke, if you say it now, okay? Everybody has an idea of what that means, even though, you know, it, it should be like woken up, woken. Um, no, I mean, you know. So, again, I'm, I'm just kind of sitting there at the keynote speech today, and this is something that I would like to talk to talk with people about it makes me nervous though because again my 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 whole idea at the writing center and 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 working as a graduate student is uh you know i'm i'm very curious but i'm also incredibly nervous about um engaging people in this conversation because I'm afraid that if I do question that in front of them openly um, it'll be perceived immediately like I'm, I'm disagreeing with them <laughs> and, and I'm not necessarily I, 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 I just think that we you know the rhetoric needs to just calm down a little bit we, we need to stop um, using words like white supremacy and racism like they're like like they they don't mean anything. I mean, you know, please don't equate me with with somebody um you know who would uh you know would use the n-word. Uh, you know, I don't know. I just don't I don't like that idea. Um so um I I do wish that you know one of one of the big drawbacks of uh, a keynote speech at a conference is that there's never questions uh i've i've at least never seen one where there are questions and you know i i didn't like that today that you know um even though i guess it was part of the program that um they 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 didn't offer time for questions because i was incredibly curious to know what everybody else thought but i also didn't want to go up to anybody and directly engage them because i did have a presentation and that was kind of the biggest thing um and I heard that speech, and I didn't think about it any until just a few minutes ago. And I don't know if I know anything new now that I didn't when I started talking about this like 20 minutes ago. But I don't know. It's just that, that that's, that's my point of view, is that I, I'm not totally disregarding this conversation. 
um, at all. But I, I, I don't believe that, uh, you know, asking students to write in a formal way, in a way that, uh, the professional world accepts, in a way that, uh, you know, they're, they're paying the university a lot of money, um, to, uh, hopefully give them marketable skills, um, and to just, you know, tell them that to write how they feel and how they talk, uh, rather than how, uh, somebody who is going to be hiring them someday might want to read their work. Um, I, I just don't think that's a good idea. Um, I don't, I don't think that's a good practice, and I think that that may be a little bit dangerous and a huge disservice um, to students. So, I, I don't know. What do y'all want? I think my dogs have just been in this cabin today, and uh, I think they're just so nervous uh, that I'm going to leave them again. <laughs> I'm not going to leave you. I'm not. Look at this. Joe Bob's about to come on. Look at this. We got, uh, we got dog biscuits. Y'all want some dog biscuits? <gasps> there you go. I guess I probably need to feed them. We've got some popcorn. You, got, you can't have that, but we've got it. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, in a pretty amazing synchronicity, for Valentine's Day, uh, Joe Bob's uh, special, he's filming in Las Vegas, and uh, he's an ordained minister, and uh, dressed like Elvis, and he's going to actually marry two people on the show. Like back in, um, back during their, their Christmas special, uh, they raised some money for charity by, uh, you know, the, the person with the highest bid could go and get married uh, in Las Vegas by Joe Bob as the, uh, as the officiate, as the, what, what do you say, the officiator? So, so uh, that's what they're going to do. Um, so in between uh, Joe Bob uh, showing the movies, he's going to marry two people. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's very strange. And he was talking about how he came to Graceland last year, too. Just have that weird ESP. Knowing things are going to happen before they happen. So. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's one of those uh, big things um, about about Las Vegas is this idea that uh, I guess you can go and get like a quickie marriage. I, I don't know what the laws are in Nevada that 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 that's possible. Is it just in Las Vegas, like Clark County? Or is it in all of uh, Nevada? Can you just go anywhere in Nevada and like get, I guess, like a quickie marriage? Um, but yeah, like it, in Las Vegas, it's like, a, you know, associated with just elopement, right? Like, I don't want to wait for the wedding. Let's go and get married now. 
or you know, like in in all the movies, you know, two people go, two people go, they get like super drunk and they get married, and they wake up and have to deal with the consequences. Um, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You know, you ever hear that uh, that little chestnut? Um, Uh, yeah, I, I've been to Las Vegas a few times. Um, it's really, really not like the the best place. I, I, I'm not like a gambler, and uh, I, I think they actually do have legalized gambling here in Arkansas. By the way, I passed a casino on the way here, so yeah. But um, yeah, if if you're not really a gambler, I mean, I, there, there's things to do in Las Vegas. Um. Like my back at Christmas, I visited with my friend Trent, and he said that uh, he used to love Las Vegas, but ever since they took out the uh, Star Trek exhibit, he doesn't go anymore. So, um, yeah, but I, I went once in like 2005, again in 2007. Uh, Jessica and I were going to go again a couple of years ago in 2020 uh, before uh, COVID happened. We were going to fly into Las Vegas and then, like, drive out to San Francisco. And, uh, obviously that, that didn't happen. So, yeah. Ah, start this, uh, cigar here. Joe on. So, uh, yeah, I, I just thought, you know, I'm in Memphis and I've got my recorder. I might as well uh, talk a little bit. It's been a while since I've done that. And I, I think I've recorded pretty much every cons- conference I've ever been to. So even though I haven't recorded a podcast in a few months, I thought this would be a good time to uh, try and get it started again. It, you know, just the reality of it is is just uh, so difficult, you know, to... Uh, you know, for me to do everything, like I know there, there are a lot of people out there who can kind of do, you know, they just think something up and they can manifest it, they can do it. <laughs> and uh, I just, I, I have so little energy throughout the day to uh, do things other than, you know, what is obligated of me. You know, what I kind of set myself up to do, which is, uh, you know, go to school and do work and study and be a scholar. Um, or whatever you want to call it. So, um, I, I love podcasting so much and I am glad that it is something that is, uh, stuck with me for, uh, quite a long time now. I mean, this is, uh, pretty much, yeah, 13 years now I've been doing the show. I mean, I haven't done, done it continuously, but I have been doing it. Um, it's been something that's, uh, stayed with me through every aspect of my life since before I met my wife. And so I do want to keep doing it. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do another show next week or, or whatever. And I, I wish I could say tune in, but <laughs> I don't know. Um, really what this is, I just want a record of this uh, really fun and, and interesting trip uh, to Memphis, Tennessee. First time I've ever gotten off the exit here. 
and uh, of course I'm in Arkansas, but uh, at a KOA across from liquor store. My God, it's cold tonight. Jeez, it's like I'm stepping outside onto the porch, and it's just like, ooh. So anyway, keep your eyes open.